From the Zimmerman Symphony Center in Canton, Ohio, this is Orchestrating Change. I'm Matthew Jenkins Yaroshevitz, Associate Conductor of the Canton Symphony Orchestra. And I'm Rachel Hegemeyer, Manager of Education and Community Engagement. Welcome to Season 3 of our podcast. We are so glad you could join us. This podcast navigates issues that exist in the field of classical music and the world at large. We invite you to listen with open ears as our guests share their experiences and as we discuss these often avoided topics. Today, we are joined by Hasmeen Morales, Assistant Director of the Center for Innovation and Community Impact at the Colburn School, a prestigious conservatory in Los Angeles. She is the founder of Fortissima, an artistic leadership development program for women of color in classical music. She is also an adjunct faculty member in the Arts Leadership Program at the University of Southern California, a consultant for both NPR's From the Top and the Smithsonian Latino Center, and serves on the board of both the Inner City Youth Orchestra of Los Angeles and the Little Village Foundation. Hasmeen Morales, welcome to Orchestrating Change. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. Thank you so much for being here. Um, this is the first time we're meeting you. So can you just tell us a little bit about you and who you are and how you came to be where you are? Sure. Well, that was a fabulous introduction that captured <laughs> a lot of my work. But um, as mentioned, my name is Jasmine Morales. My uh, primary role at the moment is at the Center for Innovation and Community Impact here at the Colburn School, where I am one half of our team. Um, where I support our Dean for Community Initiatives in a suite of programming at the intersection of community engagement and career development for young artists. That is, um, I, I've read a lot about what you've been doing and it seems like really cool. We're gonna get into it, which I'm really excited to talk about. Um, but where where are you from? How? Uh, what was music like for you growing up? Did you tell us a little bit about your background, your education? So I'm a native Angelino. I was born and raised here in Los Angeles. Um, and I come from a musical family. My father is a musician and music educator. Um, and he was a classical guitar player in Mexico and immigrated to the US uh, to study classical guitar at ASU. And uh, about halfway through his time there, he was uh, recruited by a mariachi out here in LA called Mariachi Sol de Mexico. Um, and he had never played mariachi before until he came to the States. Um, but he was lured away from his studies, seeking the fame and fortune of mariachi hood out in LA. Um, and so he uh, dropped out of school and decided to make a career for himself playing mariachi and uh, eventually was the music director, lead arranger and harpist for a mariachi called Los Camperos in Aticano, which is a multi-Grammy award winning ensemble. Um, and so I, I came into the picture around that time and was raised uh, around really gifted uh, musicians and many of whom were conservatory trained, um, but also playing uh, mariachi and other styles of, of Mexican folk music. And so I was very much raised in that um, environment where it was normal to play both classical music and mariachi or other styles of music. Um, and uh, so, uh, when I was about 
eight years old, my parents moved up to the Central Valley. My dad decided he wanted to focus his career more on teaching rather than performing. Um, and so he started a mariachi program there where he was working primarily with um, new immigrant youth and farm workers, uh, farm working families, um, and teaching them the art of mariachi music and um, giving them the gift of being able to connect with their culture uh, through music. Um, and so uh, growing up in the Central Valley at that point um, and studying classical music and mariachi was an interesting place to be. At one point, I found myself the concertmaster of my regional youth orchestra um, and the only Latina in that orchestra, the only person of color in that orchestra. Um, and so I, I always, you know, was living between these two worlds, essentially, I would walk into my, you know, orchestra rehearsal or chamber music rehearsal and feel like the only one and feel a little bit isolated. Um, but then I would walk into a mariachi rehearsal where I was, you know, in a professional group with all um, women and feel totally normal and empowered. And, you know, in my teenage mind, I thought about like, what, what would it look like for me to walk into, walk into a classical music space and have that same feeling of belonging um, and feeling represented and identified and um, just more part of that tradition. So, uh, you know, that sort of influenced my decision to study ethnomusicology um, as an undergraduate path for myself, even though I did come very close to conservatory studies, um, but ultimately felt that I wanted a more broad education and um, wanted a, a music education that would include my own musical traditions, but also expose me to more and more musical traditions. And so UCLA was is one of the few uh, degree granting institutions for ethnomusicology at the undergraduate level. Um, so I was really excited to get into that program. And um, it was really the perfect choice for me. Uh, not only did I play in the orchestra, but I was a director of the mariachi there. I played, uh, I studied Indian classical music. I sang in the Bulgarian women's choir. I played in the Near East ensemble. I made music from all over the world and studied with folks all over the world and really got a, a more sophisticated global perspective on what it means to be an artist, what it means to make music and the role of music and musicians in society. Um, but, you know, my love of classical music is so deep that right after college, I ended up right back in the classical world um, for a presenter in La Jolla called La Jolla Music Society, where I worked in their artistic department, programming a season of mostly classical music, as well as running a pretty major chamber music festival called Summerfest. Um, and, uh, you know, after a couple of years in that position, I knew that I was really a lifer in, in the world of arts administration. And so I got my master's in, in arts management coming back to L.A. after that. And halfway through that program, I landed here at Colburn, um, which has been just an amazing and really rewarding place to work and grow. Um, and so that's that's where I've been for the past five years. Fantastic. Yeah. Absolutely wonderful. Yeah. So uh, as you mentioned, you work at Colburn, a prestigious conservatory. It's one of a few conservatories that is free for all students, uh, such, uh, in addition to places like Curtis and the Yale School of Music, but a uh, prestigious West Coast Conservatory. And you work as the assistant director of their Center for Innovation and Community Impact. Tell us about what this center does, the work that you and your other team member do. Of course. So beyond being a conservatory, uh, Colburn actually has three other academic units. Uh, most of our students actually at Colburn belong to our community school. We have a community school and Colburn actually started as a community school based at USC in the late 50s. Um, and, you know, 
some years after that, we separated into our own community school, um, but the conservatory was actually a very late addition. Um, and so our, you know, we have 2000 students in the community school beginning at seven months, we have a very renowned early childhood program so there are babies on campus on any given day and which is an utter delight. Um, all the way up through high school graduation there as well as some adult studies um, and in our community school there are programs in theater and jazz and guitar, um, which are not currently represented at the conservatory level because it is so small. There are only about 130 students in the conservatory. Um, and then aside from that, we have two pre-college academies, one in music, one in dance, um, both about 40 students each. And uh, those are pre-college programs um, for highly gifted students. Many of those students are also living on campus, so uh, partially residential programs as well. Um, and then of course, the conservatory um, of about 130 140 students um, in any given year who are all, as you mentioned, um, tuition-free students. And so they're room board tuition right across the street from uh, Walt Disney Concert Hall view from the dorm uh, is 100% free for those who um, are lucky enough to get in, gifted enough to get, to get in. And um, so our unit, the Center for Innovation and Community Impact, uh, is sort of that fifth that fifth unit, and um, we serve all areas of the institution. And our job is very much to help each unit think about how they are um, interacting with the larger community in Los Angeles, but also nationally and sometimes even in an international context, because each unit of the school really has a separate audience. In the community school, it's highly localized. We're really thinking about how are we serving, you know, the immediate geographic vicinity of the school, the larger Los Angeles community, or maybe even Southern California. Um, but at the conservatory level, so many of our, you know, our students are interna international. So we have to think both on a small and broad scale. Um, and so, that's the first thing that we help uh, each unit think about how they're relating to their community. We help the units build out programs that are appropriate for each um, uh, unit that support those goals. So for instance, in the community school um, where we wanted to really grow um, local student representation from our our Title I partner schools uh, within a six mile radius of Colburn, we started a, a program called Jumpstart, which was uh, um, which started as its own band program and has now grown to include everything from strings to early childhood um, and is really a strategic scholarship program to identify and support students from our local Title I partner schools who otherwise may not have access to performing arts education um, and support them for as long as they wish to study, as deep as, as they wish to study. Um, one of the things about Colburn is that it really is a place where you can go as far as you can dream basically like everything from picking up the violin to the first time to uh you know playing with the berlin philharmonic that can happen at a place like colburn um because we are equipped to bring a child from literally seven months through their you know postgraduate studies in music um and so we wanted to be able to offer that sort of support to kids from our local community uh, many of whom are latinx uh, because la is a majority latinx city um and build those opportunities for them. And so now coming up on its 10th year, we're starting to see these students graduate and matriculate into music programs and hopefully soon into our own conservatory. Um, and so our office oversees programs like these. Uh, we help them uh, build the program, sustain them, raise money for them. Um, and then the other side of what we do is very much on the career development side, um, which is focused primarily in the conservatory because they are college age, but we do offer many of these services across the institution. Um, 
helping students think about how they want to use their careers in music. Um, you know, often in classical music, we can get siloed into some really predetermined career paths. You know, there is you're going to be the soloist, the chamber musician, the orchestra musician, or the or or if you fail at that, then maybe you'll teach. Right? There's that <laughs> uh, that sort of preconceived notion. Yeah. Um, and so our job has really been to challenge that, open up the perspectives and um, the minds of students to help them see that there are so many ways to make a career in the arts and um when a career when you have agency over how you build your career um oftentimes that is what makes it the most fulfilling and sustainable over the long term and so we want to help students identify their own personal strengths and gifts and um really uh support them as they build careers for themselves that sometimes are very much in the traditional model which is totally fine but also sometimes are completely outside of that um and so uh, you know, that's also a huge part of our role. And also, since we're a center for innovation and we are constantly piloting these different programs for different areas of the school, as well as, well as in our own area, um, you know, strategic initiatives such as all of our equity, diversity, and inclusion programming um, has also fallen under our area. Um, and so we're excited about the ways that we'll grow. Um, in the coming years as this work becomes more central to the philosophy of the institution and hopefully the field at large. Mm. So quick follow-up question to that. You mentioned there are about 130 to 140 mm. students in the conservatory at any given time. And I think you said that the Center for Innovation and Community Impact has been around for about 10 years. Mm. We began as a department of career development and community engagement. So the center itself uh, came to fruition, I think, 2018. Oh, um, all right. Yeah, thanks to a gift by Nick Nichols. Um, and that formalized us as another unit of the institution rather than kind of a, a, a siloed department, um, which is common in the arts and especially in, in orchestras that, you know, it's it's a department, it's, you know, part of something rather than a centralized leadership agency within the institution. So the, the formalization to the center was more recent, but the work has existed about a decade. Got it. And, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's wonderful to, that that Colburn has made the commitment to, mm -hmm. to the point to make it an entire division, one of the yeah. five divisions yeah. of the of the school. So my question about this, ha, so far, has anybody gone from the music, the community music school as a young person all the way through getting a degree from the conservatory? Um, yes, so we have had That's a so couple cool. of community <laughs> community school alumni into in the conservatory. That pathway is even more clear between the music academy and the mm. conservatory as well. Um, but also, we have a lot of folks who go out into other yeah. schools around the country, and because Colburn is so small, and these are small. internationally, uh, you know, competitive spaces, it can be really difficult to make it all the way through. But we've had we've had a few of those stories for sure. That is so cool. That I mean, just the the through we've talked about on the podcast about this the diversity in the field, right? What we see on stage, who's playing on stage. Um, it starts young. It starts with giving opportunities to everyone, and that this to see an actual pipeline, the through line. You all like what Sphinx has been doing. Like it's really cool to see that actually happen. Um, and it just—you were talking. I was getting so excited about it. It's just—it was just really cool. Um, but at this, you've started something called Fortissima um, within this program, and I would love um, to hear you talk about this because we mentioned it in the intro, but I'd love to hear you talk about this, how it came to be. It's I know it's fairly new, but um, just 
all about this because I'm really excited about this program. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so as I briefly mentioned earlier, I landed at Colburn halfway through my graduate studies um, when I was doing my master's in arts management. Um, and as part of that degree, I had the option to either um, complete a consultation style thesis project for an organization or to start my own project to conceptualize cool. my a project of my own making um and at that point i had already done some consulting and i was absolutely terrified by the notion of having to conceive my own project and so i knew that that was the direction that i should probably go um and in my um early conceptualization of what i wanted to do i i really thought back to my own path in classical music and having just worked for a presenter where i was also advocating to get more women and artists of color on our stages and really coming up against walls frankly um you know i started from the place of how can we get more women of color onto our stages you know still thinking in my presenter uh mindset and initially it started as an idea for an agency for women of color. Um, you know, maybe they just need better representatives. They need people, they need more people to advocate for them and, you know, book them, whatever that might look like. Um, but in my research, I was finding that it's, you know, that it's actually a problem that needs to be addressed much earlier before uh, professionalization and at, you're at the point where you can have a manager or an agent. Um, and so I started looking at what the, the, point of intervention that I wanted to have in this issue, right? Um, and for me, it was it was this uh, idea that there are already young women of color, especially here in LA with programs like YOLA, mm -hmm. Harmony Project that are really providing um, thousands of kids, this, you know, intro to classical music education. Um, but what was lacking at the time, and I was working on this in 2015, 16, um, at that time, many of the students who were part of these larger community um, organizations didn't have access to things like private lessons um, late into their teens and development. And so at that point, you know, with my conservatory hat on, I'm saying it's too late, you know, like when you haven't had a private lesson and, you know, you're auditioning for conservatory in three years, you're probably going to be at a severe disadvantage. Um, and so how can we start equipping these young women earlier? And thankfully, many changes have been made. And now a lot of those students do have access to private lessons. And we are starting to see a more critical mass of students who are um, candidates for conservatory study. Um, and so for those who are you know gaining that access and are having more curiosity about professionalization in the field i that's where i wanted to sort of focus my um my intentions here um because as a young woman of color studying classical music myself i felt that i was missing some pretty critical elements um that i wanted to address and you know one of those things for sure was mentorship that was a huge component that was lacking um in my life as a young musician um not having mentors in the world of classical music who you know shared cultural experiences that i had or looked like me in any way um, or had experienced the sort of uh challenges that i was facing in the field um and so that was a, a critical component that i wanted to be able to include but also you know some tactical uh, skills that um, are often assumed that students may have, but um, are kind of like the unspoken rules of classical music or the, you know, of, of this 
uh, culture that we live in things like, uh, you know, dining etiquette. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't grow up having a cotillion class. And, you know, I did occasionally find myself a little embarrassed when I was at a fancy party after a performance, you know, talking with donors and not really knowing like what fork to use or, you know, what I was, what was expected of me as a performer to say to these donors. Um, and, uh, you know, other elements of, you know, my own self-esteem and um, my ability to manage my performance anxiety, my preparation for what it was going to be like to actually audition for conservatories. Um, and so I wanted to address all of these things in um, in a program. So that was this, the idea for Fortissima. Um, and that ended up being my thesis project. And in the process of me sort of getting to all of these conclusions, I was taking a lot of meetings um, with people whose work I admired um, in the area. And one of those people was uh, Dr. Nate Zeisler, our Dean for Community Initiatives, um, who I knew was doing this incredible work at Colburn. And I know that, um, I knew also that we were very philosophically aligned with this work, which is that um, though it, it, we do feel it's important to serve, you know, as many children as possible, we were both really interested in the depth of instruction mm. that was happening. Um, and we also believe that students of color should also be challenged and held to really high standards of professionalization. Um, and so I, I think that was kind of just like the, the spark there. And he gave me a job uh, in his office five years ago as a coordinator um, and came to my thesis defense and said, we have to do this at Colburn. Like it's perfect for Colburn. He gave me money out of that year's operating budget to pilot the program. Um, and in just a few weeks here, uh, we will be launching our national um, residential intensive. 10 young women from all around the country are making their way to Colburn um, at the end of October um, for a one week intensive where they'll be receiving all of this training that we've been piloting over the last several years. Um, and also uh, working on um, an incredible chamber music program curated by our music director, Janina Norpoth of the Public Quartet, um, and working with various mentors and coaches throughout the week, and really getting a feel for what it's like to be in a conservatory. They'll take trial lessons, they'll get to sit in on conservatory classes, they'll get to be on campus and really have the experience, meet conservatory students, hear from other women of color who have gone through the conservatory experience, um, and really get a sense of what it would be like for them to be in a place like this, um, and not just to be in a place like this, but to feel that they belong in a pla place like this. Mm. Okay, I have a couple of nuts and bolts <laughs> questions here, just so, to, so we can get the full picture for our listeners. So what is the age of the participants in this program coming up? So for this cohort, it'll be 14 to 17, but they're all high school age. Okay. Wow, okay. Ugh. And uh, are they all performers or is yes. there like an arts management aspiring arts managers as well. We definitely want to grow the program to eventually uh, include, cool. you know, pre-arts managers, also hopefully composers, mm. maybe even conductors one day. Um, but right now, uh, only th this cohort re represents instruments taught in the conservatory. And so we, you know, the, basically orchestral instruments. Gotcha. Piano. Gotcha. Gotcha. Definitely. Cool. And uh, are they coming from all over the country, all over the world? And how did you get the word out yeah, nationally? That's what I want to know. How'd you, how'd you find them? <laughs> yes, they're coming from all over the country. So we have girls from Chicago, Virginia, uh, Massachusetts, Philadelphia. I mean, just from all over the place. We have two local girls um, 
from here in LA. And one of them is actually a, a student from our Jumpstart program that I was uh, talking about earlier. So we're just thrilled that she's in this cohort. Um, and uh, in terms of getting the word out, so we um, have five mentors who are working as part of, of uh, this program and who have really been helping me from the inception of the of this national model to not only help me conceptualize what the curriculum would be and the, uh, especially the mentorship component, but also connecting us to folks in their world, to their students. Um, and so we began a sort of national conversation uh, sort of tree uh, where we were reaching out individually to folks who we knew were running programs that served a lot of students of color um, or also just reaching out to other schools um, like Juilliard um, MAP is a perfect example of that. So making connections with mm -hmm. our um, our fellow administrators at these various programs asking for recommendations or, you know, having one-on-one -on -one conversations, sharing information about the program. And it was definitely no small feat, but it was absolutely worth every conversation had because the 10 young women in this cohort are just absolutely extraordinary. And we're so, so thrilled that they'll be here with us really soon. Oh, that is so exciting. So it's like a, is it, is it, um, I'm a, is it a free program for them to come? Yes. That's uh -huh. so, Everything oh my gosh. No cost to the student. How how awesome that is so oh that makes me just so happy um and i just want you know it's specifically for young women of color right so young women not just young people of color um what do you think that being all one gender does for these young women when they're going through a training like this what does that bolster in them maybe that it wouldn't if it was mixed company for me, it's really a sense of trust um, and safety, uh, you know, living in the area of Me Too. We're not just struggling with racism. We're also still struggling with sexism in this industry. Um, and so to be able to create a space um, where the experience of being not just a person of color, but a woman of color specifically um, can be discussed in confidence and the complexities of that can really be, you know, dove, we can dive deep there. Mm -hmm. um, and also I just, you know, I, yeah, I think just that trust and safety was really important to me. And there's not a lot of gender specific work happening. Um, I mean, there's more and more, mm -hmm. uh, but certainly at the time that I started this in 2015, I was not aware of many uh, programs serving girls specifically. So it felt like also a, a, a gap and a need there. That's Definitely. so cool. And what about, you know, we talked with a lot of our prior guests on the podcast about the fact that if, there is representation in the industry, visible representation in the industry. It's one of the most powerful ways to, in general, increase the diversity of the industry. So are the mentors who are going to be mm. working with this ten, these 10 people, are the mentors also women of color? Oh, yes, of course. Yeah, that amazing. was certainly the most important things. Yeah, so we have, I mean, some amazing mentors like Monica Ellis of Among <gasps> Twins, Carla Donahue-Prez of the Catalyst Quartet, um, Angelica Hairston, who's the founder of Challenge of Stats out in Philadelphia, Jennifer Arnold, the Richmond Symphony, um, Stephanie Matthews out here in LA, founder of, of Stream Candy. And so, you know, these women have very different careers yeah. from one another but are all first of all all connected like the world of women of color in classical music is absolutely tiny um and so you know they have uh all sort of known and intersected with each other um in their careers but are now sharing this with with the cohort and are coaching the girls um individually providing one-on-one -on -one mentorship leading up to this intensive 
um, to help them start thinking about what are the things that they want to, you know, really focus on while they're here with us in terms of dreaming and planning for their their next steps, whether that's college or beyond. Oh my gosh. Wow. That just made wow. like you said all I was like, this isn't this is amazing. Oh my goodness. Um kind of here as we're kind of in the, the middle of this conversation, you talking about this really awesome program and then I want to talk a little bit more about some of the other work that you do and um but for our listeners who are sitting here listening and wondering how, how can i learn more about stuff like this or or what should i be reading in my day-to-day -day? what is the research i should be doing do you have any recommendations for the people who are listening about maybe a book or an album that they should really be tuned into that could help them just understand something a little better or just something that you really appreciate and like and think that they would like as well Certainly a book that has been uh, transformative in my practice as um, not just an administrator, but a human and artist in the world um, is a book called Emergent Strategy by the great Adrian Marie Brown. Um, and it's a book about change. It's a book about orchestrating change, about shaping change and changing worlds is the, is the byline. Um, and uh, this book has helped me understand my position as a change agent, not just within an institution, but within a larger system that we are working and living in, um, in this moment. Um, obviously, the, the events of the past several years, I think, have really made us question our own ability to change the conditions that we're living in. Um, and I certainly, by the time, at the time that I picked up this book for the first time, I was feeling a little hopeless and, um, just uh, powerless over the sort of situation that we were living through. And what this book taught me is that um, change starts with us. And by making the small changes that over our little kingdom of the universe, um, if we can wholeheartedly bring our intention for good and for change to these small projects and interactions, um, eventually they build up momentum. Right. As more and more people do these small things that inch us towards a direction of positivity or good or change, um, ultimately they matter. Right. And so um, that has allowed me to sort of view my work um, as my change making. Right. And not just um, my job. And um, certainly Fortissima for me is is the way that I am trying to embody that with not just within my institution, but in the field at large and in the world. Oh. Yeah, and you know, you, what you just said about the book reminds me of a takeaway from my favorite book that I've ever read, Cloud Atlas by David Mitchell, where at the end of the book, essentially, this um, the, one of the main characters decides to go join the abolitionist movement in the southern United States in the 1800s. And his father-in-law says, uh, well, you're you're nothing more than just a little drop in the bucket, drop of water in the bucket. You're not going to make any difference. But what is one? Wh what is an ocean but a collection of drops? And so, if right. all of the drops yeah. are working together, eventually they combine into something incredible. And that's you know really that's what we all we're all just individuals. But if we all are working together towards this, someday we can we can realize the change we envision. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, we, we've reckoned, you know, at all levels of classical music still, there is underrepresentation, especially, if, I would say, especially the Latinx community. I mean, it, I think it's like the percentage of musicians and orchestras has stayed stagnant or gone down actually um, over the past 20 years or so. Um, but 
uh, you you mentioned you're in Los Angeles, which is uh, a overwhelmingly Latinx population. So do you see that um, in classical music in LA, there are more Latinx participants in the classical music? And do you think, um, I'm, I'm just curious, because it's a very different, you know, we're in Canton, Ohio, very different types of populations here. So I'd really love to hear that perspective of the classical music scene there in LA. In short, not really, actually. Wow. Um, and it's this is such a, a layered topic because the concept of Latinidad is also very layered and nuanced. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, what I will say is that we've certainly seen a bump since the arrival of Gustavo Lamel across the street. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And just the, the sort of emergence and importance of El Sistema and the many incredible musicians from Venezuela who have made their way not just to the Colburn Conservatory, but into the LA Phil and, you know, all these prestigious institutions. Um, and so Venezuelan representation has actually been pretty strong. Um, in LA, where the majority of Latino folk are either Mexican or Central American, there is still a pretty big lack of at least professional representation of Mexican and Central American Latinos in the LA scene. Um, and then the other sort of layer to that is that, you know, there, there are like the immigrant Latinos and then the American Latinos and like they're not always the same either. So we have like a lot of immigrants from Latin America who are Latino, but uh, many times you don't become Latino until you come to the U.S. because before that you're Venezuelan you're, or you're Mexican and that's your sort of identity. And so to come to the U.S. and then be classified with all of these other, you know, nationalities as Latino is sometimes new for Latin folks here. Um, mm. And so, uh, you know, we, there's also that layer of complexity of like the sort of um, the, the legal status of Latinos here. Um, and so, yeah, that's really difficult. What I will say is that um, because of organizations like the LA Phil and even the work that we're doing here at Colburn or Harmony Project, um, there are thousands of Latino kids who are starting, who are, um, at, who are at least getting access to instruction and instruments. Um, and many times those kids, when they come to make decisions, much like I did about what their professional futures look like, use their classical training as a, as a starting off point for something else, whether that's teaching mariachi or playing jazz or, you know, as, as a, you know, as a second generation Latina born and raised in LA, um, you know, there are many more forms of music that are relevant to my life, uh, than just classical music and that I, as an artist, am interested in playing. And I've seen that sort of repeat itself with other students that they have more of an interest in a broad range of, of musical styles rather than a super highly concentrated path in just classical music. Awesome. I, I have a couple questions just about the, the role of the LA Phil in, in all of this in Los Angeles, especially since Dudamel arrived, have there been any focused community engagement efforts toward the Latinx population in LA for one? And I, another unrelated question, uh, is there an effort to get more Latinx representation on stage in the orchestra? Um, I, I definitely would say that Yola, their Youth Orchestra of Los Angeles program, has been a, a very concentrated effort to engage at least Latino youth. Yeah. Um, and certainly the LA Phil has made great strides in 
their artist representation um, on stages like the Hollywood Bowl or now the Ford Theater, which they have newly acquired. Um, but we've not yet seen that materialize in the membership of the orchestra, membership or makeup of the orchestra, which is, you know, it's, it's a critique that a lot of people in LA have, you know, part of the reason that LA Phil is so successful um, is because of the Hollywood Bowl, where they present mostly non-classical music. I mean, they have their classical series there, um, but that's how they're able to sustain themselves in this incredible building um, across the street. Um, but the sort of all of the prestige around the LA Phil is very much uh, in the orchestra and the membership of the orchestra. And so that's that's our next point of focus, I think, as a community. We've, I think uh, Latinos in LA have done a good job of holding them accountable for asking for more artists who are relevant to them, presenting them at venues like the Hollywood Bowl. That's amazing. Um, now we would like to see that materialize in the orchestra membership for sure. So all this community engagement efforts. Um, I also am a manager of community engagements. Half of my job, the other half is education. Um, and I often struggle explaining people, explaining to people what my job actually is and how it really works. They're like, what's your day to day like? And I'm like, wow, what a question. Um, so how do you, when people ask you, what is community engagement? How do you describe community engagement? And what do you think good community engagement actually looks like? Well, I teach a whole graduate class on this I know. question because it is that big of a question yeah. um, and is really something that, you know, uh, in my administrative practice, I'm really questioning myself. Um, you know, I, I, I float around this concept of my mind of like, what does it look like to abolish community engagement departments? Because many times uh, community engagement departments are positioned as sort of like the uh, the catch-all or like the sort of PR band-aid on um, a really white institution who is not actually serving their community. Um, and uh, so it's the job of the community engagement person to, you know, fix that and uh, uh, make certain offerings that in their capacity to whatever community members and, um, you know, bring in those really sexy foundation dollars. Um, and you know, one thing that I am learning, especially now working with uh, other organizations like uh, the Inner City Youth Orca Orchestra of Los Angeles, whose board I'm now serving on, um, is that for many organizations like ICIOLA, that is a Black-led organization that is very much centered in community, that is was born of that community need, they don't have a community engagement department. Their whole organization is dedicated to community engagement. Mm -hmm. um, and so for me, in a lot of ways, our, our shift from a community engagement department at Colburn to the Center for Innovation, which is a, taking a leadership role in the philosophy of the institution, um, is a strategy that I'm hoping will inspire other institutions to centralize the work of community engagement, to make it part of every aspect of the institution rather than a siloed department, you know, that's honestly the ugly stepchild of many institutions um, and falls very low on the sort of priority scale for organizations. But I'm hoping that everything that we've learned over the last, especially year and a half um, is really, uh, you know, provoking questions at the top of these institutions about how they are embodying community engagement. Um, and to get to your question about what, what good community engagement looks like for me, um, uh, one of the texts that I that I teach in my in my class is Paulo Freire's P Pedagogy of the Oppressed, um, which basically um, points out the a system of um, education, but in, in this case, a system of, of performance in this context, um, where the artist or the teacher is the sort of uh, 
holds all of the power and beauty and knowledge in the room and deposits that into the empty vessels of the students or in this case the audience and i think you know classical music for many years has sort of held that position of you know the almighty artist who is you know godlike and the audience who sits silently and just takes it all in, right? Um, which there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but in the context of community engagement where we're trying to go beyond just performance and build context around what we're actually doing, that requires bi-directional engagement, right? So it requires something back from the audience and for the, for the artist then to respond to that, you know? Um, and so if we're thinking in terms of the visual aspect of this, instead of it going just one direction from the artist to audience, good community engagement to me makes switches that up and sends the arrow both ways, creates a dialogue and a relationship between the artist and the audience, um, or in this case, the organization and the audience. And so um, having people who represent that community who you're seeking to serve, help you think about and plan for the ways that you um, hope to program or um, you know, make these initiatives come to life is is an essential part of that for sure. I love every part of that answer. That's a yeah. really great answer. Yeah. So you've uh, thrown around a couple of acronyms here, uh, YOLA and ICYOLA. These are different or different youth orchestras that serve the LA community. Yes. Um, so the Youth Orchestra of Los Angeles is the LA Phil's program. And the inner city youth orchestra of Los Angeles, which emerged, I think, right before uh, um, Dudamel came to town, is the inner city youth orchestra of Los Angeles. Um, and that's actually based in the South Bay, um, where uh, it, it's a majority black neighborhood. And so there are many more black students in Iceola than in many of the Yola orchestras. Um, LA is still a very segregated city. And so um, around this area of downtown and East LA, it's mostly Latino in you know, South Central and South LA and in the South Bay um, is where many more of the black families live. And so for an organization like Colburn that's in based in downtown LA, it can sometimes be challenging to, uh, you know, transportation is a huge, huge issue in LA, but also for our students and something that we really have to take into account as we're creating these programs. Um, and so uh, I reached out to Chuck Dickerson, the, high, the head of ICOLA, when I was first recruiting for Fortissima and dreaming up what Fortissima was going to be. And he was really um, a key piece in how I was conceptualizing this program very early on. Um, and he and I always sort of maintained a close relationship. Um, and so when the opportunity to partner with an organization came up last year, as we were um, reevaluating all of our equity, diversity, and inclusion initiatives, I was ready to go with a suggestion for ICOLA um, because I knew that they were serving students that were difficult for us to reach geographically um, and uh, who really held the keys for us to enter that community in a way that, um, that wasn't intrusive, you know, that we were supporting work that was already happening in that community by supporting ICOLA and Chuck, rather than going in and starting a completely new program and, you know, ignoring what's already there. Yeah. So you are a board member of ICOLA. Yes, yes. Yeah. What is it like to be on a board and uh, how does your unique voice help to foster the work of these organizations? 
you know, it's, it's, it, I, I'm still early in my board tenure, I think, and I'm, I'm obviously the youngest person on the board. Um, and so it's a little scary, honestly, to just like be at that level, at that level, even though it is a small organization, but it's just so incredibly rewarding to be trusted with that kind of stewardship mm. and influence. Um, and, uh, you know, a mechanism to support an organization that I care so deeply about um, and has just been an amazing experience for me as an administrator, understanding our own board dynamics here at Colburn or at USC um, and uh, just being able to bring a fresh perspective to that and, um, you know, integrate that more fully into my practice as an administrator. Yeah. Um, I think one question I, I've been thinking more lately and I've been wanting to ask more people about is, what if you could you know talk to like a younger version of you or a younger or just the other young women who are interested in this field or just are on the beginnings of their journey what would you what would you say to them or yourself if you could go back in time i think i would encourage them to get in touch with what they really want i think we uh we project onto young people so many of, of our unfulfilled dreams and desires and i think as a young artist, I was certainly on the receiving end of that from so many people, you know, whether it's, you know, my dad who really wants me to go to conservatory and go to Juilliard and then like be a soloist or whatever that is, or my teacher who's like, you're a brilliant chamber musician. Like, why are you ruining your technique with mariachi, as they would say? Um, you know, like it's, it can be really confusing for a young person. And I didn't really have a way to check in with myself about what it is that I actually wanted. Um, and so the first thing I do with, especially, especially the young folks that I work with is help them um, ask themselves those questions and also identify what they're already good at. Because I think, especially as, you know, in my teen years and working with pre-college students here, um, the, the level of um, self-esteem and just the way that young people are talking to themselves about what they're doing can be so just detrimental. And that was certainly true for me as a young artist that I'll never be good enough, that I'll just like, everyone's always going to be better than me. Right. And so finding a way to like build yourself up as a young person and say like, my, my artistic practice matters, my creativity matters. And like, trying my best uh, to teach them not to compare as much as we are trained and sort of conditioned to um, in the world of classical music, which is obviously no small feat. And I can only sort of start them with tools and, um, you know, it, it ultimately is a very individualized journey, but those are certainly the things that I would have liked help with as a young person. Yeah. So before we let you go today, we ask all of our guests this question at the end of each episode of the podcast. The podcast is, of course, called Orchestrating Change. So from your perspective, how do we orchestrate change? Starts with you. Starts with the individual um, changing ourselves, right? How can, how can we address the way that we are moving through the world um, and allow that to embody and reflect the values that we hope to advance and bring forward in, in this new new world, new era. Yeah. Yasmin, thank you so much. This was, this was absolutely amazing. I've been smiling really big for most of this conversation. I just really appreciate your time with us thank here today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a really fun combo and it's great to meet you both. Yeah. Definitely. Hasmin Morales, Assistant Director of the Center for Innovation and Community Impact at the Colburn School. 
Orchestrating Change is a production of the Canton Symphony Orchestra. Our theme music was composed by Eric Gould and performed by Derek Snyder and Tim Adams. Our audio engineer and mixer is Nathan Maslick with video and audio editing by Shoreline Media. Thank you for listening and see you next time.